Well, I don't know about you, but on my social media timelines, the last three weeks to a month have been filled with one primary thing, and it's back-to-school photos. Has anyone else been flooded on their timeline with back-to-school photos? I think every kid of every person related to anyone that I'm friends with on Facebook has posted a back-to-school photo. And it got me thinking for one thing. Number one, I'm thankful that they didn't have social media when I was in elementary school. Because I'm like, man, I don't want those awkward years documented for the world to see. I'm thankful they're in my parents' attic somewhere, and none of you will see those pictures posted. But it also got me thinking of a, of a time, I don't remember, I was in elementary school, probably third grade, fourth grade. And if your family was like my family, when it was back to school season, it meant that you kind of got to do some things that you don't normally get to do. And I remember that year we, we got to go, as we always did, that was the time of year where we got to go get new shoes. And I loved picking out, we got to go to the Nike outlet store and whatever Nike sneakers I would want, I could get. And then I remember I got these new sweet Nike sneakers, these jeans, and then this blue striped shirt. I don't know why I remember this. It's weird, but I remember it. And I was so excited for this brand new outfit that I was going to wear on my first day of school. And so I showed up the first day of school, decked out in my new outfit. I went home. I asked my mom to do the laundry. She did. And then Tuesday morning, I walked out ready for school with the exact same outfit on. My mom was like, um, honey, I gotta help you understand something. Just because you're excited about this new shirt, you don't get to wear the new shirt every single day, right? Like calm down a little bit. It's, you gotta rotate through some of your other clothes. And I think as humans, sometimes we love new things. Right? We love new experiences. We love it when we get a new car, new pair of shoes, whatever new things we get, we naturally are drawn to and love. Well, in Scripture, it points ahead, and then when Jesus comes, there's all this new that the Bible talks about when Jesus comes and reflects on the New Testament and what Jesus is going to bring. In Isaiah, four different times, when Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Messiah, he said it's going to be a new thing. A new thing is coming with the Messiah. Ezekiel looked forward to a time where God's people would get a new heart and a new spirit would be put in them. When Jesus showed up, one of the parables that he explained of his arrival is that his coming is like putting new wine. And it cannot be put in the old wineskins, but he is something new. In Luke, and then again in Hebrews, Jesus affirms that he's come and he's brought the new covenant to us. In Ephesians, it talks about how we have been made one new humanity. In Colossians and Ephesians, it tells us to put on the new self. And ultimately, one we're all looking forward to in Revelation till the day where we get to the new heaven and the new earth. Being a follower of Jesus means a lot of new things in our lives. And one of these new things that Jesus says is true of us, we're going to look at tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them. 2 Corinthians 5 is going to be the main text that we're in tonight. Um, you hopefully received a bulletin when you came in tonight. And in there, um, in the middle, is 2 Corinthians 5 as well as an outline for our passage tonight. And we're going to discover tonight, what does it mean that we have been made a new creation in Jesus? And what are the signs that we are living into this identity that we have been made new in Christ? It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God, I pray that you would be with us as we look at your word tonight. That you would open our eyes to see the realities of who we are in Jesus now that we have been made a new creation. Would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to look at this passage. We're going to dive into these four verses here in 2 Corinthians 5 and look at three signs that we've been made into a new creation. Three signs that we're living into this new creation in our lives. The first is just the first phrase there in chapter 5, verse 14. The first phrase says this, For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. This first sign that you've been made a new creation in Christ is that you have a new love in your life. That you've been given a new love in your life. Your life is defined by this radical love that Jesus Christ has shown and given to each and every one of us. This word here where it says the love of Christ controls us is a unique word. It only occurs one other time in Scripture. And it has kind of a couple different connotations, which is why in some translations it will say like ESV does, it controls us. Other translations will say it compels us, that the love of Christ is compelling us. It has a twofold meaning here. First, there's this significant fact that the love of Christ controls us. And what he's doing there, Paul is, is reflecting on the love of Christ in our lives. And that if you are a new creation, you indeed have received this new love from Jesus Christ. And you've experienced the love of God in your life displayed through his sacrifice for us on the cross. But not only have we been saved by the love of Christ, the love of Christ controls or it compels us. It's this outward overflow of our lives. So that when we have received the love of Christ in our lives, it's not just that we say, look at me, I, I've got the love of God, but that it overflows out of us and it controls and compels us so that we then overflow with that same kind of love towards the people in our lives. If we are a new creation in Christ, the love that we have received from Jesus is to show out in our lives to the people around us. I love as one scholar commenting on this passage put it, so simple but I thought so well. His love is the first and the last word in everything we do. Jesus' love is the first and the last word in everything that we do. So if we are to love like Jesus, this love controls and compels us, we should reflect and think, well then what, what is Jesus' love like? If this love that God showed us is supposed to pour out of my heart into the people around me, what was that love like that Christ showed and exemplified in his life on earth? The first thing that Jesus' love was like is Jesus' love was sacrificial. Jesus' love for us, for people, is a sacrificial love. It says in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus exemplifies this sacrificial kind of love that we are to model then in our lives. <clears throat> I came across recently 
a Netflix show um, called Sacrifice. And it was by this guy who's kind of a psychologist, illusionist, mentalist. He does kind of magic type stuff. And I was fascinated with the concept of it because I had heard a little bit about it. And he said this, he wanted to take an ordinary person and make them a hero. He wanted to make them a hero. And it wasn't staged, it wasn't set up, but he found a person, did a casting call. Of course, it's all like this one elaborate scheme and the only person who has no idea is the one person selected. And he put them through a number of scenarios. And he wanted to create a hero that everyone could be inspired and look up to to see the transformation and the change in this person's life. And it was a very interesting show, but what captivated me the most about this was what was this guy's definition of a hero? The man, the creator of the show is an atheist. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in God. Doesn't believe there's a God at all. But his definition of a hero was this, one who would lay down his life, who would sacrifice his life for someone that he used to hate. Someone who would lay down his life and sacrifice his life for someone that he used to hate. And the whole show is how, how can you help transform someone so that they actually see someone who they used to be conditioned to hate and instead offer up your life for them. But I thought, isn't that interesting? That even an atheist, when they describe what a true hero is, what they look at is for sacrificial love, for sacrificial love for others. See, you think if we're honest, when we think about our love, and if you reflect really on the love that you show sometimes towards others, I don't know about you, but often in my life, it's reflected more with a selfish love than a sacrificial love. Sometimes my life says that my decisions and who I love most is actually me. And it's not the people around me, it's not my family, it's not God. But so often I find that, that my life is a selfish love rather than a sacrificial love. And it's easy maybe for you to think of people in your life who, who have this kind of selfish love. I think it's easy to see this in others, but it's sometimes harder to see it in ourselves. Right? We can see when someone isn't loving us how they should. We can just sense it. Like, you are being selfish. Something is not right here. But it's a lot harder sometimes to recognize those patterns in our own life. I think this is true because sacrificial love is by nature humble. Right? If you're going to be sacrificially loving someone, it means you consider them as better or more important than yourself. So you're naturally, it's a humble love versus a selfish love, which is naturally prideful. And pride is a blinding sin that we cannot see by ourselves in ourselves. And the sacrificial love that Jesus showed towards us is the kind of love that we are to exemplify towards others. It's a love that's powerful and that's moving in our world. I was reading a book this last week written by a couple of Navy SEALs who helped lead soldiers in Iraq for several years. And they were reflecting on some of the training and the lessons that they had learned. And they talked about how your band of brothers that you go out with, they're not just men that you fight along, but they were saying you get to a point and you have to where you love the man next to you. And they said this was exemplified for them so clearly in a man whose name is Michael Monsor. And he was on his last combat mission in Iraq as a Navy SEAL when he was hunkered down on top of a building and a grenade was thrown up 
on top of the building where he was with four other soldiers in his last combat mission, and without hesitation, he jumped on the grenade and sacrificed his life to save his brothers around him. It's an example of not being selfish, not thinking of yourself. It's, it's my last combat mission. I'm about to go home to my family. I'm going to try and jump away from this to save myself. But no, I'm going to do what's best for others, even if it costs me myself. Jesus' love is sacrificial, and that's the love that we should have for others. Jesus' love is a patient love for us. Jesus' love is a patient love. One of the most repeated phrases throughout Scripture and in the Old Testament is that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. God is patient towards his people. One of my favorite stories in Scripture that I wish I could have just been there to feel the emotion as it happened was after the resurrection, as Jesus makes a fire and cooks some fish along the Sea of Galilee, and he restores Peter to fellowship. This Peter, who a few days or weeks earlier had denied him, cast him aside, wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus, instead of being like, hey, dude, you lost your shot. Like I said, you were going to be the rock. Peter, I, I gave you all the props. And why, why did you do that? He would have had every right to be like, you know what, you blew your opportunity. But Jesus' love is a patient love towards us. And when we make mistakes, he is patient towards us even in those times. And that's to be the love that we have for others. If the love of Christ controls us, then our love will be a patient love for the people around us, just as Jesus has had a patient love towards us. Another aspect of Jesus' love is that it's limitless. It doesn't see someone and say, I can't, I won't love that person. In fact, it's interesting when you read through Jesus's ministry, so much of his time here on earth was spent with people that society had pushed aside, the lessers of society, children. No one had time for children in ancient Near East society. Jesus did. He welcomed the children unto him. His love knew no racial boundaries. Jews, we don't talk to Samaritans. Jesus did. His love didn't know any racial boundaries. They, that didn't matter. He crossed over them all to show the love that he had towards others. Lepers, the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts of society, those that Scripture only calls sinners. That's who Jesus was with all the time. His love doesn't know any limits. In fact, Jesus, as we know, even loved his enemies. His prayer on the cross for the people who crucified them, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. A limitless love that God has for us. If we are living out the new creation that God has made us to be, this love should be true and evident in our lives. And in our divided world, as we seek to hunker down and sow even more discord and division, and with an election just over a year away, it's not going to disappear in our world. Will your life, will the church be known as a place where the boundaries that our world would say divide us, we overcome through the love of Christ for each other? 
We have an opportunity in this world and in our lives to be a powerful representative of the new creation that God has made us by showing this kind of new love that Jesus has placed in our hearts and in our lives as it controls and compels us. Let's go back to to verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The second sign of this new creation in Jesus is this new status that we have in Jesus. We have a new status, a state of being because of what Jesus has done for us. It says here that that we have died. We have died. what, What does Paul mean when he says that we have died? Well, it means that we have died to sin through Christ's death on the cross for us. Paul fleshes this out more in the book of Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 5. But flip over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Where Paul says this, Romans chapter 6 starting at verse 6. We know that our old self, before the new creation, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, we, when we were born into this world, were slaves to sin. It had power. It had control over us. And in the old self, before we've been made new by Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. See, we talk a lot at church about how Jesus has taken care of our sin. And when when we say that, we often mean the penalty for our sin. The Bible teaches that the wages, what we deserve from our sin is death. Our sin separates us from God and we need to face God's wrath because of that sin. But Jesus paid the penalty for that. And so we no longer have to face the penalty for our own sin. And praise God that Jesus has done that. But when you're a new creation in Christ, you experience more than just the fact that you no longer have to pay the penalty for your sin. What Paul is teaching us here in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Romans 6 is we're free not just from the penalty of sin hanging over our lives, but from the power of sin in our lives as well. That we are free, we are no longer slaves to the power of sin, but have been set free by Christ from the power of sin in our lives. This is a new status that we have. We are free from the power of sin over us. See, sin still remains in our world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, chances are you've sinned today, maybe even in the last hour, right? We we still struggle with sin. Sin still remains in our world, but sin does not reign over our lives. Sin remains in our world, but sin does not reign over our lives any longer. I was reading a sermon this week by the the well-known British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
And he was talking about how we can understand what it means that we've been taken from being dead to sin to being made alive to Christ. And he was a British preacher, so he said, imagine a British countryside, which I've never been there, so I really had to use my imagination. Right? I'm like, all right, I'm picturing something beautiful and flowing, flowing green and hills. And he said, imagine a wall in between the two sides. But it's too big. You couldn't get over it yourself. On one side, you were dead to sin. And then when Jesus came and made you alive, he picked you up, he moved you over the wall, and he placed you on the other side of the wall. Your status is new. You've been taken somewhere and placed somewhere that you could not do yourself, but only God could do for you. Then he said, but in this world, there's a voice on the other side of that wall that we still hear. And so sin will still call out to us and we'll hear the call of sin. And once in a while, sometimes more than we want, we'll still follow that voice. But until we realize, I don't have to do that. That voice has no power over me. I've been moved. I am now a new creation in Christ. I'm no longer under the power of sin in my life. See, I love that phrase, consider yourself. For if you were like me and you grew up with the King James Version, the good old word, reckon. It's a great word. Reckon yourself dead to sin. See, it, it starts often, what Paul is saying, it's in, in our mind, how we view ourselves. See, some of us are allowing this old influence of sin to have dominion and power over us because we aren't considering and reminding ourselves that we are indeed dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and we've trusted in him alone for salvation, yet thoughts come into our head, well, maybe I'll do something that's too great. And we feel guilt and condemnation, like maybe God will cast me out. But when we consider who we are in Christ, we'll remind ourselves that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe when, when we're, we're in Christ, but, but we, we think back, but, but what about my past what about all the things that I've done? But then when we're a new creation, we can remind ourselves that Jesus' word says, God's word says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our trespasses from him. Oftentimes we live still with the spirit of fear, and fear reigns over us in our lives. But in a new creation in Christ, it says God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. For many of us, perhaps our greatest fear, our greatest anxiety and worry in this world is to be alone, to be alone in the world. And we would say, man, but, but, but what, if, what if I do something? What if I cause God to want to leave me and, and I, he abandons me? And you don't know, but God's word promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. And when you have been made dead to sin and alive to Christ, you need to consider those truths in our lives daily, reminding ourselves of who we now are. See, oftentimes the reason we find ourselves in such a deep struggle is just because we're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting who God has made us to be. And we're considering the sin in our lives reigning over us when in fact we have been put dead to sin and made alive to Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. If you would turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this, 15 to 17. It says this, And Jesus, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This third sign that we've been made new in Christ and we've experienced the new creation is that we have a new motive in our lives. A new motive, a new desire of who we live our lives for. I love that phrase in verse 15 that says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, when we've been made a new creation in Christ, it doesn't just change our status from being dead to sin to alive to Christ, but then it compels us into action that we no longer live lives revolved around ourselves, but ultimately revolved around Jesus Christ. See, our world tells us to live for ourselves. You do you. Be what you want to be. Go after whatever dreams you would want and push aside anything that anyone would ever put in your way. And the problem is in our world so often we place our identity on our achievements, our grades, our jobs, our positions, and our titles. But what happens when we get there and we realize that that's still empty? Because ultimately any of those things is living for ourselves, not for Jesus. See, it was interesting. I, I heard a story recently about a boxer named Tyson Fury. Now, I am not a boxing fan. Although it's interesting, if you, if you know anything about boxing, he actually fought last night. I didn't realize that until I, I saw it last night. I'm like, oh, check it out. That's great. All right? So he, he fought and he won last night. At one point, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. His name was Tyson. He literally was named after Mike Tyson. Like this guy was born to be a heavyweight champion, even though he was actually born three months early and weighed one pound. Not your normal start to a heavyweight champion of the world. But his family was a boxing family. He was in grade school when he started boxing competitively. And for years, his life was consumed by one thing, be the champion of the world. Be the heavyweight champion of the world. His identity, everything was wrapped up in that one thing. And then four years ago, he did it. He finally achieved it and he found it empty. It meant nothing. And he spiraled into a deep depression, gained 150 pounds, and in an interview said the only time he's happy is when he's completely numb on alcohol and cocaine. Until eventually he has turned his life back around the last year or two. But he got to the top. He did everything that it was. His identity had been centered on this thing. It's not a bad goal, but he had been centered and focused on that until he realized it was empty. See, if our life is focused around anything other than Christ, any achievement, any being, eventually we can search after and go after, but ultimately it will leave us empty and needing more. See, I even struggle with this as a pastor. It doesn't have to be bad things. It can be good things that we do in life, but if you place your identity, your soul focus on it, it can leave you shaken. If as a pastor, if I put my identity on just this and serving as a pastor, what do I do when people leave the church and they don't like my preaching and they have bad things to say about me? If my identity is found up in who I am as a pastor, that shakes me to the core and I get insecure and I get anxiety and I get fear. But if my identity is tied up as a servant and a follower of Jesus Christ, 
then that hurts, and yes, but it doesn't shake me. It doesn't destroy who I am because that's not my identity. My identity first is in God. See, so often in our world, we think wrongly about what it means to follow Jesus. We sometimes think that to follow Jesus means that he's kind of the first of many priorities in our lives. I'm a list person. I love making lists. It's one of the first things I do every Monday when I come into the office. And then kind of in our mental list of priorities, like, okay, to be a Christian means Jesus is number one. All right, I got that part right. All right. My family is number two, my job or my school, right? And we kind of go down the list and we go, okay. And if you're like me, one of the favorite things why I love lists is I love checking things off, right? It's done. It's done. Check it off. And we can think this way, all right, Jesus is number one. All right, I got up, I prayed, I read my Bible this morning. Check mark, off, done with Jesus for the day, on to the next thing. See, Jesus isn't just your first thing in your life so you can check him off the box. A pastor many years gave this illustration, which I found so helpful for me, so hopefully it's helpful for one or two of you. He said, think of the Christian life not as a list, but as a wheel. Think of the Christian life as a wheel. The spokes on the wheel, which are those things that come in and out, are every area of your life. You have a spoke that's your family, your job, your finances, your pleasure, your entertainment, all of it. And then he asks this, what's the hub that holds all of it together? What's the hub that affects every single other decision in your life? And ultimately it comes down to, is it me or is it God? See, if, if I put myself at the center, then ultimately every decision in my life is ultimately just affected by, does this help me live for me and what I want? Versus if we put God at the center of our lives, our whole world starts to revolve around him. And it changes not just our spiritual lives, but it changes how we think about work and entertainment and family and all those other things are affected by Jesus. See, to be a new creation in Christ means that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. One of the, the things that I've found helpful as I've been reflecting on this truth this week is a challenge that I want to leave you with today. And how can I make this more true in my life? To find my identity in the new creation that more and more my life would not be resolved, revolved around myself but around God. And for me, it's just been praying a simple verse of scripture this week, and I would challenge you to make this your prayer this week. He must increase, but I must decrease. God, Jesus, you must become more in my life, and God, would you make me less in my life? Make this your prayer this week. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been made a new creation. The love that Jesus has displayed for us compels you to show that same love to the people around you. You have been made from dead to sin to alive to Christ. You have a new status. Sin does no longer reign over you, but Jesus does. And because Jesus reigns over us, he compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are made a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come because of you, your love, and your sacrifice, your resurrection for us. 
God, I pray that we would live into this new creation that you have made us to be. That we would truly understand what it means that sin has no power over our lives, but Jesus reigns over our lives instead. May the love of Christ compel us to place you at the center of all we do. That we would not live for ourselves, but we would live for you. The only one worthy of living life for. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.